Good morning, ladies. It's always a privilege to be asked to teach you, but it's also an awesome responsibility. So I really appreciate the prayers that many of you communicated that you've been praying for me as I've studied and prepared for this lesson. Authorities on the subject have said that more Christians have died for their faith in the 20th century than the total who died in the previous 19 centuries of church history. (laughs) Um, In other words, persecution was not just limited to the early days of Christianity. The book of Acts gives much evidence of how the church was persecuted and also how they responded. Could anything good come from this persecution? Acts 8 will show us how the persecution of the early Christians in Jerusalem actually led to the furtherance of the gospel to Samaria and Africa. We'll be studying about Philip, not the apostle, but Philip the evangelist. In Samaria, we'll meet the first false convert, and in Gaza, an Ethiopian who was a true seeker of the gospel. In chapter 7, we heard the testimony of Stephen and his rebuke of the Jews who had persecuted and killed Jesus. And as the crowd rose to stone Stephen, we got our first introduction to Saul. Apparently, the men removed their outer robes so as not to be hindered in their ability to hurl the rocks at Stephen. And Acts 7.58 tells us that the witnesses laid aside their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. As we begin chapter 8, we're going to see the persecution of the church in verses 1 through 3. We learn that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. Saul was right there encouraging the killers. The killing of Stephen then opened the door for all kinds of persecution of the church in Jerusalem. The Jewish religious leaders did not like the fact that thousands of Jews were becoming Christians. We learned in Acts 2.41, so that those who received his word were baptized, and that day they were added about 3,000 souls. And then after the healing of the layman in Acts 4.4, but many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Now, we don't know how many women and children also came to know the Lord And the leaders were upset by the rapid growth of the church and the preaching of the resurrection of Jesus, the one they had asked to be crucified. Saul just went wild, devastating the church, entering house after house after house, dragging men and women off to jail. John Piper said, I want to encourage you from Acts 8, 1 through 8, that God rules over the sufferings of the church and causes them to spread spiritual power and the joy of faith in a lost world. It is not his only way, but it does seem to be a frequent way. God spurs the church into missionary service by the suffering she endures. Therefore, we must not judge too quickly the apparent setbacks and tactical, quote, defeats of the church. If you see things with the eyes of God, the master strategist who cannot lose because he's omnipotent. When you see in every setback is the positioning for a greater advance and a greater display of his wisdom and power and love. Now there's a sharp contrast between the next two verses, between verses two and three. In verse two, we see that some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But in Acts 8, 3, we see Saul began ravaging the church. 
Saul seems to have become the lead persecutor. It may be concluded that the primary targets of persecution were the Greek-speaking Jews. Now, they would have been easily identifiable by their language and would have been associated with Stephen. The fact that all the Jerusalem believers, except for the apostles, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria was God's method of fulfilling the mandate of Acts 1.8. But you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Rather than quelling the message of the gospel, it caused Christians to be scattered, to be spread out to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Those who had been dispersed preached the word wherever they went. And to confirm this missionary purpose of persecution, look at Acts 11, verses 19 and 20. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia. Now that's modern day Lebanon. And Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean, and Antioch, which is in Turkey, speaking to no one except the Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which is a city in Libya, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also preaching the Lord Jesus. This is an evidence of God's sovereign control. The persecution not only sent the church to Judea and Samaria, but also beyond to the Gentiles. As I was preparing this study in July, I read this devotional thought from Paul Tripp in his book, New Morning Mercies. God's commission to the disciples is his commission to the church, and it's his plan for the life of every single believer. No one has been chosen just to be a recipient of the redemptive work of his kingdom. No, everyone who has been chosen to be a recipient has also been commissioned to be an instrument of the work of that kingdom as well. The work of evangelism, the spiritual growth work of the church, and the cause of worldwide missions was never designed by the Redeemer to be shouldered by a small collection of paid religious professionals. Does God set people apart for ministry? Of course he does. But their role is not just to do ministry, but to mobilize, train, and equip all of God's people for the great honor and privilege of publishing his amazing grace wherever they are. Sometimes we believe the sole responsibility for evangelism is assigned to missionaries and pastors, but it's a charge to all believers to share the good news of the gospel that Christ came to save sinners. Let's look at the proclamation of the message in verses 4 through 8. Now, one of those believers who went out to evangelize was Philip. Now, there's a close connection between Stephen and Philip. In Acts 6, we read how the apostles were overwhelmed with some of the mundane tasks, such as trying to take care of the widows. And so they appointed seven men to assist them in caring for them. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip. This same Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Now, let's remember the geography of Israel. Israel is on a plateau in the Judean mountain range. It is 2,474 feet in elevation. It's along the ridge route, or what we call the Way of the Patriarchs. So whenever you visit Israel, you have to go up to Jerusalem. 
So therefore, Philip went down to Samaria, which is at a lower elevation, where he continued a ministry of teaching and healing. Now, who were the Samaritans? And do they exist today? Assyria attacked the northern Israelite tribes in 722 BC, and many were taken away captive. The Jews that remained married Assyrians and were considered half-breeds by the rest of the Jews. They were despised by the Jews, and the Jews, when they were traveling to the north of Israel, would not go by means of Samaria. Now, the Samaritans believe only in the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Old Testament. There should be a picture in front of you now of Jacob's well. This is a deep well constructed from rock that's been associated with Jacob for nearly four millennia. The well is not specifically mentioned in the Old Testament, but Genesis 33, 18 through 20 states that when Jacob returned to Shechem from Padam Aram, he camped before the city and bought the land on which he pitched his tent and erected an altar. Biblical scholars contend that the plot of land is the same one upon which Jacob's well was constructed. Now, Jacob's well is mentioned by name once in the New Testament in a passage in John 4, verses 5 and 6, which says that Jesus came to a city in Samaria called Sychar, near the field which Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. John goes on to describe a conversation between Jesus and a Samaritan woman at this very well. I had the privilege of drawing water from this deep, deep well that has existed for 4,000 years. You can see by the amount of rope on there that I had to turn quite a bit to get to the bottom to actually drop water. But this wall has been in existence since the time of the patriarchs. So now we know uh, in the next one we're going to see that about 1,000 Samaritans exist today. And in 2015, we had the privilege of engaging with the Samaritans in Nablus, meeting a Samaritan priest and visiting their museum. Now, their religion today is a combination of the Old Testament and superstition. They lived in ancient Shechem, which was later named by the Greeks Neapolis, and that has been corrupted by the Arabs to Nablus. We don't get to visit Nablus very often because it's on the West Bank, and at times it can be a hotbed of unrest. But now we see Philip in this very place. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as he heard as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Philip's proclamation of Christ was confirmed by numerous signs. These miracles authenticated his message. Now, I have a friend who has a beautifully decorated home. And on her dining room table is a display of beautiful cream-filled fruit tarts and some chocolate-covered strawberries. Oh, the fruit is glossy and delectable, and the whipped cream looks so frothy. My husband went to snag a berry and take a bite, and she warned him, don't eat that. It's not real. And it's been sitting there for years. Looks can be deceiving. We're going to see Simon, who looks like he's doing the right things, but is the first false convert. Let's look at the professors of faith in verses 9 through 13. Before Philip's arrival, a certain Simon had practiced magic in the city, posing as a famous man and dazzling all the Samaritans with his wizardry. As they paid attention to him for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. 
because of his, quote, sorcery, the ability to exercise control over nature and or people by means of demonic power, people called him the great power. Simon boasted that he was someone great and the people believed him. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Philip preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Kingdom of God refers to the coming kingdom, and the name of God looks to his position as Messiah. He is the God-man. The message meant that some Samaritans would become heirs of the millennium by faith in Jesus, the Messiah. Let's look at the contrast and comparisons of Simon and Philip. You see, they both perform miracles. Simon by demonic power, Philip by divine power. Simon boasted and welcomed a claim to himself. Philip proclaimed Christ. People were amazed at Simon's magic, but people were converted to Christ by Philip's ministry. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and he observed signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. Amazingly, Simon himself believed and was baptized. He quickly seems to have recognized in what Philip was doing a power greater than the one that he possessed. He not only believed and was baptized, but he stuck close to Philip. But here are some facts that suggest that Simon was probably not born again. Number one, believe does not always refer to saving faith. Simon's faith may have been merely intellectual assent, motivated by selfish reasons. Secondly, faith based only on signs is not a trustworthy faith. In John 2, 23 to 25, when our Lord is speaking at the Passover during the feast, it said, many believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. John 4.48 says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. In this instance, many believe that Jesus was a great healer, but not necessarily a great savior from sin. Jesus knew that a temporary excitement or a faith based on signs was not sufficient. Many of the early followers turned back when he didn't take on the role of a political king. In John 6, 66, it says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Thirdly, Luke never stated that Simon received the Holy Spirit. And fourthly, Simon continued to have a self-centered interest in the display of miraculous power. By following Philip, he was able to maintain contact with his former audience. Let's look at the proof of the work in verses 14 through 17. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. It was necessary for the apostles in Jerusalem to commission Peter and John to Samaria. 
Normally, the Holy Spirit baptizes, indwells, and seals at the moment of faith. But this was a time of transition in which confirmation by the apostles was necessary to verify the inclusion of a new group of people. The same transitional event occurred when the Gentiles were added to the church in Acts 10, 44 through 46. And this delay served several purposes. Peter and John's prayer and their laying on of hands confirmed Philip's ministry among the Samaritans, providing apostolic affirmation. And when the withholding of the Holy Spirit until the representatives came from the Jerusalem church was to prevent a schism because of the natural propensity of division between the Jews and the Samaritans, it was essential for Peter and John to officially welcome the Samaritan believers into the church. Let's look at the perversion of the truth in verses 18 through 24. Simon saw that the spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands. Now this clause implies that there was some external manifestation of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Possibly it was speaking in tongues or in languages similar to the manifestation at the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.4. But the people who had the apostles' hands laid on them were miraculously transformed. Simon desired not the gift of the Spirit himself, but he wanted the power to lay hands on people and have the Spirit come upon them. Simon wants to buy the God-given ability of the apostles to be able to impart the Holy Spirit to others. Peter's reply is sharp and swift. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. You see, Simon failed to understand grace, the free nature of God's salvation and blessing. When Peter says that Simon has no part or share in the ministry implies Simon was not a real Christian. He was captivated by false doctrine and sin and showed no signs of repentance when he responds, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you said may happen to me. John MacArthur taught that Simon had a wrong view of self. He was like the Gnostics who had come later in the New Testament who believed they had secret or elevated knowledge and claimed to be gods. Far from the humility necessary for salvation, Simon was full of pride. And in James 4, 6, we read, Therefore it says that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Simon had a wrong view of salvation. He saw Philip's miraculous power and joined the movement to attain this power. He viewed salvation as a commodity to add to his arsenal. Simon had a wrong view of the Spirit. In verse 18, he offered money to buy the Spirit. We get the word simony from this verse. Simony is the attempt to buy spiritual office, status, or power. It's named after Simon Magus, who is described in the Acts of the Apostles as having offered two disciples of Jesus payment in exchange for them empowering him to impart the power of the Holy Spirit to anyone on whom he would lay his hands. The term extends to other forms of trafficking for money in spiritual things. Lastly, Simon had a wrong view of sin. Peter told him he needed to repent of his sin. 
His response was sarcastic, cynical, and mocking. Simon's profession of faith was merely external, with no internal change of heart. Any attempt to bring the spirit under human control is nonsense and to be rejected outright. The spirit is the spirit of the sovereign God who blows when he, where he wants and how he wants. In verse 25, we see that Peter and John were so convinced of God's working among the Samaritans that they began visiting Samaritan village, sharing the gospel with them before they returned to Jerusalem. Craig Keener said in the New Cambridge Bible Commentary, God so desires to reach the ends of the earth that he contrives extravagant means to accomplish it. The angel's message, the spirit's direction, and quote coincidences that include the official's appropriate scripture text. We're going to meet the Ethiopian eunuch now in verses 26 through 40. We see the command in verse 26. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip to go south to the route that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza via desert or a deserted road. Now, Philip was having an effective ministry in Samaria. He was teaching many new believers, but he didn't hesitate when he heard the call. Gaza is one of the five Philistine cities. Ancient Gaza was destroyed in 93 BC, and the city was rebuilt closer to the Mediterranean Sea in 57 BC. We'll meet the contact in verses 27 through 30. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Philip obeyed God's sovereign directions and met the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, a eunuch is one who has been emasculated to serve in positions of state. And Candace was not a name, but rather a title, like Pharaoh. So Candace was the queen mother, and Pharaoh was the king. Governmental power, though, rested in the hands of Candace, for the royal son was worshipped as the S-U-N's son, and was above such mundane duties as ruling a nation. The eunuch was Candace's chief financial minister. Now, the reference to Ethiopia is not modern-day Ethiopia, but to ancient Nubia, which is sort of the southern portion of Egypt towards the Sudan. Now, the eunuch had come to Jerusalem to worship. This is interesting, as the law prohibited eunuchs from entering the Lord's assembly in Deuteronomy 23.1. No one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. However, Isaiah, the very scroll that he is holding and reading aloud, predicts great blessings for eunuchs in the millennial age. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, which will not be cut off. Isaiah 56, 4 and 5. Now the eunuch must have learned from Jews in his country about their faith that motivated him to travel over 1,000 miles to Jerusalem. This was a journey that would have taken several months. Their own tradition says that the Queen of Sheba brought back Jewish priests and taught the Jewish faith to Ethiopians. We know that Ethiopian Jews predate Christianity. 
Evidently, this eunuch was a worshiper of Yahweh. He had procured a copy of some of the scriptures and demonstrated a genuine hunger for the truth. The fact that the eunuch can read and that he has a copy of the Isaiah scroll indicates his wealth, his education, and his interest. As one who supervised the queen's wealth, he could deal in trade and be fluent in both the Hebrew and Greek languages. An interesting note is that in 1984, through Operation Moses, Israel, with the assistance of the United States, airlifted 8,000 Ethiopian Jews to Israel. Again, in 1991, Operation Solomon was a covert operation to airlift over 14,000 Ethiopian Jews to Israel in 36 hours. The Ethiopian Jews were being persecuted by the Muslims. Jews in Ethiopia, known as Beta Israel, were largely cut off from the mainstream of Judaism for millennia, and their faith evolved in a somewhat different form. But Israeli authorities have recognized them as Jewish. They had continued to adhere solely to teaching from the Old Testament, but they weren't familiar with the rabbinic teaching that had been added to modern Judaism. Let's look at the conversion in verses 31 through 35. The angel directed Philip to join him in his chariot. Philip didn't hesitate, but in verse 30, it says he ran eagerly to join him. Philip heard him reading Isaiah aloud and questioned him as to whether he understood what he was reading. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. These are words that are quoted from Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. The Ethiopian knew that the passage described an individual, but was it Isaiah or someone else? Simon wanted the power. This man wanted the truth. Philip seized the opportunity to present the good news about Jesus. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Isaiah 53 has been referred to as the first gospel. This was a prophecy of a servant who would bear in his body the suffering and shame of God's people to provide redemption through his sinless sacrifice. The eunuch had been seeking to know the truth of the scriptures and learn that Jesus the Messiah, the sinless Son of God, had suffered and died in his place for forgiveness of sins. He rose again and ascended to his father in heaven where he made atonement for those who would believe in him. You see, the Messiah provided redemption for the whole world. It included everybody. The presentation pointed him to Christ and taught him about baptism. No wonder he wants to share in baptism, the symbol of Christ's death and burial and resurrection. Let's see the consequences in verses 36 through 40. As they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch. And he baptized him. You see, Philip was following the charge given in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This was a baptism of a black man from Africa. The gospel is going to the uttermost part of the earth from Judea and Samaria. And now the Ethiopians are going to take it back into Africa. It's abundantly clear that the gospel is starting to go to a wider world. Wherever you go, whatever culture you come from, whatever situation of human need, the answer is found in Jesus. The result was that the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. It's interesting to note in the book of Acts that we see descendants of all three of the sons of Noah coming to the Lord. In Acts 8, we see the Ethiopian eunuch who was a descendant of Ham from Africa. In Acts 9, we're going to see the conversion of Saul, a descendant of Shem, who was from the Middle East. And in Acts 10, we'll see the salvation of Cornelius, a descendant of Japheth from Europe. The good news is spreading throughout the ancient world. The Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. Philip appeared at Azotus, which is now modern-day Ashdod. This was the ancient Philistine capital where the Old Testament had taken, the Ark had been taken. Philip continued to proclaim the gospel all along the coast until he reached Caesarea. We find that Philip is still in Caesarea 20 years later in Acts 21.8, where Luke tells us, On the next day we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Philip began with an itinerant ministry and ended with a residential ministry. He fulfilled God's command of Acts 1.8 by being a witness of the Lord in Judea, Samaria, and up into the Galilee. Was the persecution of Christians a death sentence to Christianity? No, it was the force that pushed believers out of Jerusalem to reach the unsaved people of the world. The powerful preaching of Philip caused many Samaritans to believe in the truth of the gospel. But the Lord warned that sometimes the seeds of wheat grow among the tares. In Matthew 13, he says, But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The Lord told them, Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. You see, the Lord knows the heart of a true believer. We saw Simon, the first false convert, and the Ethiopian eunuch, a genuine convert. Is your faith one of true repentance for your sin against God? Or are you just outwardly going through the rituals? <coughs> or has your heart submitted to the pure, powerful, and penetrating word of God? I trust that if you have never repented and asked for forgiveness from the Lord, that you'll speak to someone today who can explain the scriptures in the same way that Philip instructed the Ethiopian eunuch. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we know that all scripture is given to teach us things. And we know, Lord, that in this chapter especially, Lord, you are teaching us that as believers, that we are not to be just recipients of your grace, but we're to be instruments that can be used by you to share the good news wherever we go to all people. And Lord, we saw the examples of two who profess Christ but one who had all the wrong motivation, all the wrong reasons, and only the outward signs. But Lord, we saw one who was a true believer, one who really wanted to understand your scripture and to believe in your son, the one who had 
led a sinless life, who was sacrificed on a cross for the sins of us. Lord, who rose again and has ascended into the heavens, Lord, where he now stands and makes atonement for us. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we pray today if there's anyone here who has never really repented of their sin, but really understands the gospel from this presentation, Lord, that they would come to accept you today. Lord, we just thank you for this time we've had to share together. And as believers, Lord, help us to trust in the Lord and do good, to cultivate faithfulness, to delight in the Lord, and he will give us the desires of our heart, to commit our way to you, to trust also in him, and he will do it. In thy precious name.